The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. I'd invite you, if you would, to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10. We began our look last week at verses 17 through 24. We made it about halfway through the text, and we come back to it this morning uh, as a part two to sort of finish it up. So to get us back into the swing, we'll read together. I'll read out loud, and you follow along with the whole text, beginning in verse 17 of Luke chapter 10. Luke writes, The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desire to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. I can remember this day in my life like it was yesterday, which is remarkable because I don't remember what I had for lunch yesterday. But it was in my junior year of college. I was here in Charleston, and I had reconnected with a friend who had grown up in my neighborhood. Really, he had younger brothers that were closer to my age, who I knew well, and had grown up riding bikes and playing with. His name was Chris Allen. Chris was a few years older than myself. His name is still Chris Allen, by the way. His neighborhood was right down the street from mine, and he had invited me one day to come to his house to, uh, with some regularity to do Bible study together. Just a, someone a little older than me in the faith who took some interest in my life and wanted to invest in me and do Bible study together. There was one catch to it. It had to happen due to his work schedule at 6 o'clock in the morning. Now, no college student is keen to get up for Bible study at 6 o'clock in the morning. The, the incentive was his mom bought the best coffee ever. And so I determined 6 a.m., good coffee, I can make that work. And I really wanted to go. So I went to Chris's house on a particular morning, and what we would do is 
he wasn't teaching me. He, we were just listening to sermons by a pastor called John MacArthur. Uh, just to date myself a little bit, we were listening to cassette tapes, sermons, of a guy named John MacArthur, a pastor I had never heard of up to that point in my life, though I had grown up in the church. And we were listening through the Gospel of John as he was preaching. And I remember on this particular weekday morning, somewhere between 6 and 6.45 a.m., semi-awake on coffee, discussing a sermon we had listened to. And in the midst of that sermon, it was on John chapter 6, Chris looked at me and he said, have you ever really thought about why it is that you're saved and why you're a Christian? Have you ever thought about the question, did you choose God or did God choose you? How would you answer that, he said. And immediately out of my mouth became the word I. I said, oh, I know the answer to this question. I chose, and then I stopped mid-sentence because we had just been listening to the Gospel of John, chapter 6. Now, mind you, a couple of things are at play at this moment. I had grown up in the church. I did not know, really, this pastor who we were listening to. And really, up to that point in my life, nobody had ever talked to me about the doctrine of election. It was like reading a Russian dictionary. It was foreign to me. I'd never heard it. It sounded like an alien teaching that certainly couldn't be in the Bible because after all, I reasoned in my own heart. I've grown up in church. I've listened to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of sermons. Well, at least semi-listened to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of sermons, right? I understand how it is. How is it possible that I've never heard this before? How could this be so? The question really continued to spin in my head for weeks and weeks, which turned into months, trying to figure out what to make of all this. So I began doing what I think uh, every true believer should do in moments like that. I began to search the scriptures for myself and ask this, the question, what does the Bible say? Not what does a pastor on a cassette tape say or my friends say, what does the Bible say? Surely the answer can be found there. And really, over a period of about a year and a half or two years, I, I wrestled through this doctrine and trying to figure it out and searching the scriptures to try to understand and reconcile what I was learning with what I had always been told. And the more I dug around in the word of God, the more I saw the truth of God's sovereign election all over the pages of the Bible. So much so that there was no way to evade it and there was no way around it and there was no way to avoid it. So much so that there's no way to say, well, this is just some obscure verse somewhere that theologians disagree about, so I don't have to deal with it. It was shocking to me to read because I'd never heard it before. And according to my own human intellect and understanding and senses of justice and fairness, it didn't seem right or fair by my own judgment. But I'm convinced from the word of God that it's true and remains so to this day. 
This doctrine, the doctrine of election, has been the subject of significant controversy throughout the history of the church. If you know anything about the history of the church, you know this to be true. You could go back to the 1500s and you could read the writings of a man named John Calvin and another man, a contemporary of his by the name of James Arminius, who debated severely through written prose and debate this issue. You could fast forward a couple centuries to the 1700s and you could read the writings of a man named George Whitfield, a famous preacher. And you could read the writings of another man named John Wesley, whose hymns we still sometimes sing, who found themselves on opposite sides of understanding this doctrine. I read last night, uh, again for the first time in many years, George Whitfield's letter to John Wesley. Uh, it, in, in the midst of, of their debate over this issue. You can go back and Google it. It's worth the read. It's worth the read for a number of reasons because I think he makes a very strong case. It's worth the read because he knows how to debate a brother in Christ with civility and clarity. But the 1700s, this was a matter of controversy in the church. And you could fast forward to this year, 2022, I think it is, in the Southern Baptist Convention, this issue is bubbling, has been bubbling below the surface for many years, and it's bubbling to the top of the surface and simmering over the pot here, it seems, in these days in which we live. I give you that just as a brief historic backdrop, but I want to make a statement about that. And here's the statement I want to make. And you judge for yourself if you think it's true. Doctrine is not in itself divisive. People are divisive. Doctrine in itself is not divisive. People are divisive. We live in a, a very strange culture right now in the United States of America, a very divisive, hostile culture, where it seems that on every issue or on any issue, people are being driven to take an A or B position. You have to either be this or you have to be that. And if you're this, you have to rage against that. If you're a Republican, you have to rage against Democrats. If you're a Democrat, you have to rage against the Republicans. If you're conservative, you, you have to, 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 to fight the progressives. And if you're progressive, you have to fight the conservatives. Every issue, it seems, demands an us or a them position. divides people, divides families, divides neighborhoods, divides churches. You have a media apparatus that drives this kind of division. You have a social media apparatus that facilitates it, really, where people will say things that they would never say to someone's face, but they'll type it on a computer in a stream of thought. where you can put up the most docile of opinions on anything and almost immediately you'll see people raging in your comment stream this way or that. It drives division and it drives hostility. But I want to posit to you this morning that people can choose to disagree on a matter and not allow disagreement to divide them. That is possible to do. 
you recognize, right? As intellectual, mature individuals, it is possible to disagree on a matter and not allow a disagreement to divide us. People can choose to respectfully disagree and maintain relationships and maintain friendships. Your life is going to be very short-sighted if you can only be friends with people who agree with you on everything. And you're going to be handicapped intellectually as well. And I would say beyond that, in the church of Jesus Christ, that should be the rule, not the exception. It should be the rule, not the exception, that we're able to, with maturity and respect, disagree and not be divided. The, 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 the culture in which we live ought to be able to look to the church and see something very, very different about how we navigate with people with whom we disagree than what they see in the broader scope of the culture around. Sadly, so often, that is not the case. And I would further argue that the inability to do this, that is, the inability to disagree without dividing, is a sign of spiritual pride and immaturity, and not the opposite. It's pride that manifests itself in our hearts that, that, that requires us to have to be affirmed by everybody else and to have to win every argument. It's immaturity that does not show an increase in humility and an increase in the fruit of the Spirit. Things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and self-control. The inability to disagree without dividing shows a lack of the fruit of the Spirit. It shows a lack of a heart that is filled with peace and patience with other people who don't see things the same way. Kindness toward those who see it another way. A heart that isn't set on being at peace as far as it, as far as it depends on us with everyone. The writer of Hebrews says we ought to be. It shows a lack of self-control. As lead pastor of this church, my commitment is always, and it has always been, to teach the whole counsel of God's word, to show you what the scriptures say about a matter, and to help you understand what the scriptures mean by what they say about a matter. We do expository teaching because we don't want to skip the hard things. We believe all of God's words matter, and that we should consider them all. Because something is difficult, because something is hard for us to understand or hard to reconcile doesn't mean we have license to ignore it or skip it. Apparently, that was the attitude of the church to which I grew up. My job is to challenge you to wrestle through the hard things and to settle it in your own mind. My job is to challenge you to learn how to settle your convictions and hold them firmly, but to hold them with humility and grace. And so at this church, as far as I have influence over it, I'm determined that this is going to be a safe place where we can study hard things together and respectfully and humbly disagree with one another, particularly on second, third, and fourth order matters. Where it's a, a place where it's safe to be in development theologically, where it's safe to be able to wrestle with things that you don't understand and to ask questions and to interact with people who see it a different way because it's through that that we grow and we learn. 
A place where every person doesn't have to see every issue exactly the same way in order to fellowship and serve Christ together. A place where we can love one another, serve one another, and not demand that everybody think the way that I think about everything. It's important to set that context as we look to our text this morning and we deal with a doctrine that many have used to divide over the centuries since Christ's death and resurrection. Because when we look to our text, here's what we find in the second half of it. We find Jesus Christ, the Son of God, rejoicing. In fact, not just rejoicing, but overflowing with joy, bubbling over with incredible joy, spilling out of his heart. And the joy is coming from his reflection on the gracious will of God in sovereign election. He's rejoicing that God the Father sovereignly chooses to reveal the gospel to some, and he sovereignly chooses to conceal the gospel from others. And what we see is that his will in doing this, Christ calls gracious. And the result of reflecting on that in the heart of our Savior is a cause for great rejoicing. How do we make sense of that? Well, let's look there this morning. We'll spend the, the first probably 40% of our time dealing with the remainder of the text, and then we'll sort of use that as a jumping point to address this doctrine in general that jumps off the page of this particular text. But for those of you who weren't here with us last week, the context in the broader sense, beginning in verse 17, is the return of 72 disciples whom Jesus had launched out on a missionary venture. Two by two, he sent them to preach the gospel of, of himself. He sent them without supplies, without refreshment, without money, without any extra anything, and he told them to trust him and to go and to preach and to heal. And they had done that for some period of time. And beginning in verse 17, we have the account, as Luke records it, of the 72 men returning with great joy to their Savior to report what had happened on their mission trip. And they are overflowing, bursting with joy themselves because what they found was when they obeyed Christ and when they stepped out in faith and when they did what he called them to do, they found that every step along the way he supplied their every need and was faithful to his every word. In spite of their fears and anxieties, they found Christ to be faithful. And they came back just overflowing with joy. They're, they're amazed that Christ had supplied their every need. They're amazed that not only had he supplied their needs and done what he said, he had done even more. He had given them the power to, to, to some degree exercise demons. And they begin to talk with Christ about that matter. And Jesus rejoices with them in what is going on and what has taken place over this period of time. But he recognizes in their joy over what's happened in their ministry that there is a potential danger. And that potential danger is that they would become enamored with ministry itself and focus on the wrong things. And so in verse 20, he gives them a warning. He says, 
Don't rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In other words, it's wonderful what took place, and it's wonderful that demons submitted to you by the power of the Spirit, even to you. But what's even more remarkable, and what's even more worthy of being rejoiced in, is the fact that God would save you to begin with. That your names are written in the book of life. That you have Christ, and that you belong to him. The true significance of their lives was not their ministry success, but it was that God had claimed them as his people. That was what they ought to rejoice in. That's what should anchor their joy. The main thing that really should be blowing them away was that Christ was not that Christ would work wonders through them, but that Jesus would save them to start with. And that reality needed to be there in their lives because it needed to serve as a hedge against sort of ministry pride and so Jesus warns them about this and then he turns his attention in verse 21 to himself or Luke does he he sort of swings the camera if you will from Jesus thoughts to these 72 to what Jesus says to his father that same hour he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit he said I thank you father Lord of heaven and earth that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding, and you have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. It's the only time Jesus in Scripture is described as rejoicing like this. He's full of joy. And he's full of joy at the gracious will of God in sovereign election. And he says it in two ways. He, he says it in the first part there in verse 21 through this language about how God the Father has chosen by his gracious will to hide these things, which in this context uh, specifically means the truth of the gospel, his identity, his messiahship, his divinity, his ability to save, all the things that these 72 have been out preaching in all these villages God has chosen to reveal these things to some people and he's chosen to conceal them from others. And then the second part of this text in verse 22, he says, all things have been handed over to me by my father and no one knows who the son is except the father or who the father is except the son and whom? Anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. He's rejoicing that God has hidden the gospel from those who are wise and understanding. Who does he mean here when he's talking about those who are wise and understanding? Who are these people? Well, these are, it has nothing to do really with intellect. It isn't saying that God has chosen to hide the truth of the gospel from everyone who's smart. What he's talking about when he uses this phrase, those who are wise and understanding, uh, a, a good example of this would be the spiritual elite of Jesus' days. Those who, those who think they've got it all figured out. Those who rely on their own wisdom and their own intellect and their own human understanding and think that by means of those things, they can figure everything out. That everything has to be measured by what their wisdom and their understanding and their intellect discerns. They are the judge of everything. People who think they've got it all figured out 
are the kind of people that God hides his truth from. They're the kind of people who would take credit for that knowledge if they had it. They're like the Pharisees and the Sadducees of Jesus' days who were incredibly, incredibly educated, particularly in the scriptures, but they did not know God. They knew theology and they knew the Old Testament, but they were completely blind to the true nature of God and they were completely blind to the identity of the Son of God when he stood face to face with them. They had no idea who he was. Why? Because the Father has hidden those things from those who are wise and understanding. It's the self-righteous. It's those who think they've got it all figured out. Had lunch on Friday with a man who I had never met, who is a part of the Anglican Church here in the Low Country. And his particular congregation, if you know anything about the Anglican Church, the Episcopal Church in, the, in America, there's a split that's taken place. And there's a, the Episcopal Church split, and a, a huge chunk of the churches had broken away because, by and large, the mainline denomination had rejected the, the truths of Scripture and embraced all sorts of foolishness and become little more than a, a sort of a, a social gospel experiment, divorced from the truth and the inerrancy of Scripture. And so a faithful remnant said, we're, we're not doing this, we're getting away. And this had taken place, and it's been running through the courts, and, and recently uh, the South Carolina Supreme Court declared that many of these churches who have broken away now are faced with losing their property. It's now being reverted back to the Episcopal Church from whom they've split. And this particular man was a part of a particular church who was in that situation. So we were discussing this. And he was telling me about his faith journey growing up as an Episcopalian of the U.S. And he began to talk about a, a pastor who I hadn't thought about in many, many years, a man by the name of Bishop John Shelby Spong. I've quoted him before in sermons, but it's been a very long time. I hadn't thought about him in quite some time. Bishop John Shelby Spong was an Episcopalian uh, bishop who rejected the virgin birth, who rejected the resurrection of Christ, who rejected the deity of Christ, who rejected the inerrancy and truth of Scripture, among a number of other things. And if you were to Google his name, you could find his writings, but I wouldn't advise it. But what you'll find is a man who is very closely attached to the Christian church in America, in this case, the Episcopal Church, who's been elevated to the office of bishop in the denomination, who's well-educated and learned, but he's completely blind to the truth. It's people like that, I believe, to whom Christ is speaking here. Who has the Father chosen to hide the gospel? People like that. The wise and the understanding. People who think they've got it all figured out. Phil Riken says this. He says, God's not an intellectual elitist. There's no minimum IQ for membership in the family of God, and we all say, praise the Lord, right? The gospel is not restricted to people who are smart enough to understand it. All we need is a teachable spirit 
and a childlike trust in Jesus Christ. Jesus rejoices that God re that he conceals his truth. He hides it from the wise and the understanding. And he graciously and mercifully reveals it to little children. What does he mean by little children? What he means by little children is simply ordinary people who trust in Jesus with a childlike sort of faith. The word for children here refers to, to very, very young kids, children who are not yet grown, who are not yet matured, who are not yet educated, people who could not, who could not discover God's truth by their own intellect, people who, who would, to understand anything about God, it would have to be revealed to them because they don't have in themselves what it would take to figure it out on their own. People who don't come to Christ as an intellectual endeavor. People who come to him by simple faith and trust. So little children. So he uses little children as an example. God graciously has hidden the gospel truth from the wise and the understanding. And he has graciously revealed it to people who don't have to be smart. Who simply come to him in childlike faith and trust who recognize that they have nothing within themselves to merit his favor, but simply humble themselves and say, praise you, Lord Jesus, that you've opened my eyes to see this truth. I receive it with joy. It's a reflection of the same truth that we read Paul write in the letter to the Corinthians just a few moments ago. That God has chosen the foolish, right? He's chosen the foolish. It's another way of saying like little children in order to shame the wise, those who think they've got it all figured out. Said another way in verse 22, says, all things have been handed to me by my father and no one knows, excuse me, no one knows who the son is except the father or who the father is except the son. Now, just pause for a moment. We could do a whole aside here on the doctrine of Trinity and work through what is meant by this because the remarkable thing that Jesus says here, he says that there is at least some degree in which the father and son interact with one another in such a way that nobody really fully can understand it from a human perspective apart from divine revelation that comes from the son. No one knows who the Son is except the Father. That is to say, nobody knows all of what it means to be the second person of the Trinity apart from the Father. We can't fully grasp these things, but the Father knows them all, and nobody can fully know who the Father is except the Son. Nobody knows all the depths and the riches and the glory of God the Father except the Son, and he says here, anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. The Son does not reveal the Father to everyone. He sovereignly chooses to reveal it to some. There are many things we could say about that particular verse, but I want to focus in on this particular issue. But I will say, as an aside, this particular text, this, these words of Christ, eliminate any possibility of somebody coming along with a foolish notion that somehow they can believe in God and reject the Lord Jesus. You can't do that. The only way to know the Father, to truly know him, is to have that revealed to you by the Son. 
So when your friends and your neighbors say, oh, I believe in God, I just don't, I just don't really believe all this stuff about Jesus. I don't think he was divine. I don't think he was, there would be a Bishop Spong. You can say to them, I don't know what God you believe in, but isn't the God of the Bible. Because you can't understand or even know the God of the Bible apart from the Son who reveals him to you. Okay, that's an end to that aside. The issue here, though, is anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Who are those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him? It doesn't include everyone. There are some that the Son chooses to reveal the Father, and there are some that the Son does not choose to reveal the Father. It's another way of saying that our redemption is wound up in the activity of the whole Trinity. There's a sense in which God the Father sovereignly plans our redemption, where our redemption at the same time, while planned by the Father, is purchased and revealed to us by the Son, and it's applied to us by the Spirit. All of the Trinity is involved in our redemption, and to some degree, in our election. So how would we define this doctrine of election if we want to summarize it, taking the text in front of us, and many others we'll see in just a moment. Here's a simple definition. Election is this, the act of God before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure, or as Jesus says it here, his gracious will. We see it here in Luke chapter 10, but we literally see it all throughout the New Testament. Nearly every biblical author writes about this particular doctrine and expresses it in some way, shape, or form. Peter teaches this doctrine. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has, what, say this with me, caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In chapter 2 of 1 Peter, he co-ops Old Testament language for Israel's election by God to be his unique people. And he says to the church to whom he's writing, but you, in verse 9 of chapter 2, you are a, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. A chosen people. And he exhorts people at the end of chapter 1 of Second Peter to examine themselves and to make their calling and their election sure. The Apostle Paul teaches this doctrine all throughout. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 4 is quite explicit. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He writes to Christians in Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility. He 
2 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 8, he writes to Timothy, he says, Therefore, don't be ashamed of the, te of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, God that is who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and his own grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And he begins the very short letter to Titus this way. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect. You say, what about the apostle John? Does he talk about this? You bet he does. In Revelation chapter 17, John writes in verse 14, he's talking about the end of time. He's talking about those who rebel against the Lord at the end. And he says they will make war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will overcome them because he's Lord of lords and he's the King of kings. And with him will be his called, chosen, faithful followers. And if you flip back a couple pages to Revelation 13, verse 8, He's talking about this beast who will come at the end of time and deceive most of the world. And he writes, and all who dwell on earth will worship it. That's the beast. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slain. Luke writes about it here in Luke chapter 10, Acts chapter 13. The, the gospel goes out and it's preached to a mixed crowd. And Luke records for us these words in verse 48 of chapter 13 of Acts. As many has, uh, has had been appointed to eternal life, believed. Who believed when they heard the gospel? All those who were appointed to eternal life. James chapter 2, verse 5, James writes of this, and Jesus speaks about it more occasions than this one in Luke chapter 10. Speaking of the end of time, in Matthew chapter 13, verse 20, Jesus says, if the Lord did not cut those days short, that is the days of tribulation at the end, nobody would survive. But for the sake of the elect, whom he's chosen, he shortened them. And he talks about what's going to happen at the final judgment. He says, and he, that is the Father, will send his angels in Matthew 24, 31. He'll send his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heavens to the other. John 13, 18. John 15, 16. John 17, 9. And we could go on and on and on and on. Biblical author after biblical author writing about referencing what Jesus says to these 72 and the others who are listening. That in some way, everyone is saved who is ever saved is saved because God chose them to be saved. Not because the Father planned to reveal the gospel to them and the Son revealed it to them. We say, well, that sounds bizarre. 
What does that do to the nature of God? Well, let me point to two things there. I would point you to these two things about God's nature and his character that have been consistent over time. Number one, God is sovereign. That means that he does whatever he wants to do and he depends on nobody else. God is sovereign. The Bible declares it from front to end. He does whatever he wants and he depends on nobody else and he answers to nobody else. And the Bible declares that underneath his sovereignty, everything that he does is always just. That is to say that God does whatever he wants to, and when he does whatever he wants to do, he's always right in doing it. And there's nobody who can challenge that. There is no higher authority of justice than God. In fact, what he does defines what's just. The Bible teaches us this in so many ways. Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, learned this the hard way in Daniel's day, in Daniel chapter 4, verse 35, after a pretty traumatizing encounter of challenging God's sovereignty and learning the truth. Here's what Nebuchadnezzar says. He says, all the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and with the peoples of the earth. Did you hear that? God does whatever he wants with the powers of heaven and the people of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? Isaiah, in chapter 14, verse 26 and 27, says this. This is the plan determined for the whole world. This is the hand stretched out over all nations. For the Lord Almighty has purposed, and who can thwart him? His hand is stretched out, and who can turn it back? The answer is no one. Psalm 139, the psalmist writes in verse 16, uh, a familiar text. He says, you saw my unformed body. Right, my unformed body, you saw it, God. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. God has complete sovereignty over our lives. The writer of Proverbs says in Proverbs 16, 9, in his heart a man plans his course. Read this last part with me but the Lord determines his steps. We make plans, but the Lord determines our steps. He is sovereign. Psalm 135, verse six, the Lord does whatever pleases him in the heavens and on the earth, in the seas and all their depths. God is absolutely sovereign. He does whatever he wants with whatever he wants in heaven and on earth, and there's nobody who can stop him, and there's nobody who ranks above him, and there's nobody who can question the justice of what he does. And I would add to that that the Bible declares not only is he sovereign in that way, but he's also always been selective. Prime example of this is Israel in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, when God speaks to them about this issue, listen to what he says because it's remarkable. He says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. He's reminding him, uh, all of Israel, of his sovereign election of them as a nation. 
that God has uniquely chosen out of his good pleasure, out of his sovereign, gracious will to pour out his blessing and his mercy and his grace in a very unique way on the people of Israel, in a way that he doesn't do it with the Hittites or the Jebusites or the Philistines or any other people on the planet, or the Amalekites, the termites, anybody, just the Israelites. I mean, listen to what he says beyond that. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other people, for you were the fewest. But it was because the Lord loved you. Look in the mirror and rejoice that God has chosen you to be his unique people. But know at the end of the day, he didn't do it because you were the strongest or the mightiest or the smartest. He did it because he chose to because he chose to love you in that way. And as sovereign God of the universe, his license to do whatever he wants. And he's chosen you to be his treasured possession. In the same way that God chose Israel in the Old Testament and not the Philistines, in the New Testament, in the covenant of grace, he does the very same thing. He chooses to reveal himself to some in a salvific way through the gospel, and he chooses to conceal himself from others. And as far as we can go with that is simply to say that it's what the Bible teaches. To ask the question, well, why then does he do it this way is to ask a question for which you can't answer and I can't answer. The only answer to that is, because it was his gracious will to do so. Or, in the terminology of Deuteronomy chapter 7, because the Lord loved you, that's why he did it. You say, well, Greg, this doesn't make sense. I mean, how do we reconcile this with all the things in the Bible that talk to us about man's responsibility and human responsibility and the requirement for man to respond to the gospel? Well, just as true as it is that every person who's ever uh, saved is in some sense chosen by God for salvation, it is equally true that the Bible makes clear that for a person to be saved, they have to hear the gospel and they have to respond to it by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, repenting of their sin, and entrusting their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no other way to be saved apart from that. And the Bible is replete with that truth over and over and over again. And the call to do all of those things, to believe and to repent and to trust the Lord Jesus, it, it, it resonates as can echo all throughout the New Testament. And it seems like an open invitation to everyone. We see that most prominently in John 3, 16. If you know it, you know it. Say it with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Some of you ain't King James on me, and that's all right. So at one and the same time, everyone who is a Christian is a Christian because God's chosen to reveal the gospel to them and elected them in eternity past. And at the same time, everybody who is a Christian is a person who hears the gospel, believes the gospel, repents of their sin, and entrusts their lives to Jesus Christ willingly. There's a biblical tension between the two that we can't fully reconcile. 
But Christ helps us in two passages, and we'll wrap this up with those. John chapter 6, verse 37. Full circle back to the sermon I was listening to in high school, excuse me, in college, at Chris Allen's house at 6 a.m. in the morning. Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Who's going to come to Jesus? All that the Father gives him. How many people who come to Jesus will be turned away? None. How are both of those things true? I don't know. I just know they are. That everyone to whom the Father chooses to reveal the Son, they come to him. And everybody who comes to them in faith believing, there are none who are turned away. John chapter 6, verse 38 and following. For I've come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he's given me, but will raise them up on the last day. All right? Christ says, my mission is this. The Father's given people to me, and my job is to lose none of them and to raise them all up on the last day. That's to get them all to heaven. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. And I'll raise him up on the last day. So that leaves us with the question, exactly who will Jesus raise up on the last day? Well, he's going to raise all that the Father gives him, and he's going to lose none. Who else is he going to raise up on the last day? Everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him. So if you're good at middle school math, you know the transitive property. If A equals B, right, and B equals C, then A equals C. Write it down, because it's late in the sermon, and you may be already drifting off. If A equals B, and B equals C, then A has to equal C, right? So if Jesus is saying here that the ones that are going to be raised up on the last day, that is those who are going to be part of God's eternal kingdom and go to heaven and spend eternity with him, are those who are at one and the same time, those whom the Father has given him, and also those who've looked to him and believed in him. It's the same group of people. So there is a biblical tension there. But because we don't fully understand the tension doesn't mean we neglect the clear truth. And J.C. Ryle, again, he's been so helpful in Luke chapter 10. I'll conclude with him. He says this, Let us, however, never forget that God's sovereignty, speaking particularly here in regards to sovereign election, does not destroy man's responsibility. The same God who does all things according to the counsel of his own will always addresses us as accountable creatures as beings whose blood will be on their own heads if they're lost. We cannot understand all his dealings. We see in part and we know in part. Let us rest in the conviction that the judgment day will clear all up and that the judge of all will not fail to do what's right. In the meantime, let us remember that God's offers of salvation are free and wide and broad and unlimited. Really helpful. What should be the response of the believer 
to the doctrine of election. It should be at least three things, probably more. Number one, it should humble us. It should breed humility. When we look in the mirror and we recognize that I don't have any part in the merit of my salvation, that the only reason I know Christ today, that the only reason my sins are forgiven is because the sovereign God of the universe chose me in him before the foundation of the world. That he brought the gospel through people who would share it into my life. And I heard it. And he opened my eyes. The son did. He reveals the father to me. That I might believe the gospel and respond in faith and obedience. It's not because I was smarter than anybody else. It's not because I was more religious. It's not because I'm better than anybody. Simply because God chose to love me that way. Why? I'll never understand. But because of it, I'm humbled. I look at my life and I know how far I fall short of the glory of God in so many ways. Thoughts, actions, deeds, everything. That God would send his own son to die on my behalf and then choose me in him. Tumbling. Tumbling. It leaves no room for spiritual pride. The other thing it should do is it should fill us with gratitude and it should cause us to rejoice. It is this very truth that causes Jesus to overflow with rejoicing. If we were to look back at Ephesians chapter 1, when Paul writes about this, he's, he begins before he says anything about election. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and he goes right into the doctrine of election. He's rejoicing in the doctrine of election. They got his sovereignly chosen people. It should be a cause for gratitude and rejoicing. I don't know why God chose you. I don't know why he chose me, but I'm thankful that he did. I know I don't deserve it, but I'm so glad to receive it. And I'm thankful for every single person that the Lord has used in my life to bring me from darkness to light. For every teacher, for every friend, for every pastor, for people like Chris Allen in my life, who God used to make my calling and election a reality. I think it should also drive us to be people who do that for others, who recognize that however these things work out theologically in the depths of the great wisdom and majesty of God Almighty, that however it all reconciles fully, one thing is sure, that the only means for someone to come to Christ and be saved is through people who go and preach the gospel and call them to salvation. That is the means by which God saves men and women. And any construction of the doctrine of election that undercuts that reality is false and untrue. Are you thankful that God has chosen you? Are you thankful that before there was a you, he planned your salvation down to the very people who would bring the gospel to you? Are you grateful 
and rejoicing in the fact that when you heard the gospel, he opened your eyes to believe it? As foolish as it sounds to the world around us, he opened your eyes to see it and to believe it. He granted you faith to respond. And all of that you did to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. God, we confess you're sovereign. Your word is unequivocal about that. You do whatever you want, whenever you want, and whatever you do is always right. We are not your judge. We don't set up a standard of justice and then judge you by it. Your actions define justice. The fact that any of us are saved, in fact, has nothing to do with justice. It has everything to do with mercy and grace because you would be completely just in allowing every one of us to spend eternity in hell paying the due wages for our sin. That's what we deserve. That would be justice. But in your mercy and in your grace, though you've hidden the truths of the gospel and the means of salvation from the wise and understanding, You've chosen to reveal it to little children like us. People who don't deserve it. People who don't even fully understand it. But people who know that our only hope is you. And in that we rejoice. In that we are humbled. In that we celebrate the greatest gift that could ever be given. Lord, humble our hearts about these matters. For those who are struggling and wrestling with these things, maybe like that day when I was at the Bible study, they're hearing it for the first time, or maybe they've just been wrestling with these truths, trying to make sense of it for a long time. I pray that you'd be gracious to them, that you'd help them, that they would find spiritual growth even in the wrestling and even in the searching. And I pray that you'd help them to settle these things in their heart and to come to convictions and hold them firmly but with grace and humility. And as a church, Lord, may the fact that you've chosen us fuel our worship every single time we gather. May our hearts overflow with joy and gratitude at what you've done for us. Lord Jesus, for that man or woman who doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, I pray that you would open their eyes this morning to believe you are indeed the Son of God who's died in their place, shed your blood for their sins, and who calls them right now to believe in you, the Son of God, dead, buried, resurrected. that they might repent and entrust their lives to you right now and be saved. For we pray it in Christ's name, amen.